yeah, that's that's fascinating. So it, it makes you wonder what what is going to, if ever, get to a point to where. Because yeah, I mean, like I feel like there's never gonna quote be something big enough to cause this huge war unless there's you know I. I don't want to manifest it, but it's like, you know, unless something just like major happens in the homeland, like that might be you no know, cause of something. But it's just like, yeah, I mean, there's like, there's probably few things that would actually result in World War Three. Ever heard of a podcast where one of the hosts has no idea what's going on? Well, now you have. Welcome to Unprompted, the show where one of the hosts shows up completely unaware of the conversation topic for the episode. From technology to society to history, life, and more, each episode features a unique topic, and the hosts unravel the details together using nothing but their background knowledge and past experiences. Hosted by Luke Bogus and Jared Arts, we hope you enjoy today's unprompted conversation. No. Okay. It is the morning, Luke. It is, and we are many miles apart, unlike the past. Yes, this is the first remote recording so it's probably going to end in disaster but we'll have to see (laughs) well i'm glad that you sound normal and i'm glad that there isn't a three second latency when we were testing this before we're trying to figure out how to do this remote rig yeah it was uh pretty catastrophic but uh we're here we're live hopefully the audio sounds great you'll have to let us know um and i'm pumped for today's topic i think a being remote and b being unprompted this is really we are really in the heat of what our show is founded on so yeah should be great you are the king of marketing the show in the show. <laughs> <laughs> what can I say? Marketing <laughs> you are the heart. Mar- yeah, of course. Well, I guess I have today's topic. Um, and so this morning, I did my classic topic search where I just looked at my bookshelf at books I've read <laughs> and chose one uh, to talk about. So today we are going to talk about one and two things which are very similar and it's a history topic so last time i did a history topic and this time we're doing a more modern history topic okay um and so today we're going to talk about zeppelins and the inner war bomber theory so luke tell me first (laughs) just like last time what's your knowledge of zeppelins Mm. And early bombers. Well, when you said Zeppelin, I thought you meant Led Zeppelin. <laughs> okay, that's a great start. <laughs> <laughs> and bombers, I, you know, as a kid, I used to think, what is it, the stealth bomber, the B-2 stealth bomber? Yep. I thought those were pretty sweet. I went to a football game once, and that was the flyover, and I thought that was pretty cool. So that's the extent of the word bomber <laughs> and Led Zeppelin. So okay. I... As per the last one, I'm geared up and ready to ask a lot of questions. Well, that sounds good. And I likely will inadequately answer most of them since I'm <laughs> definitely not an expert on this subject. But um, so I guess here's a, I'll ask you a question first. And I hope you can answer this, Luke. <laughs> when was the first airplane flown? You know, I knew it was the Wright Brothers. Okay, and that's, that's good. That's Kitty Hawk. Kitty and Hawk. And I know the classic, like, I know how it looked. Like, I, I know, like, the I'm, like, yeah. picturing myself in history class looking at the picture. But I couldn't tell you the year. Did you give me a, a decade? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to make myself look like an idiot. Okay. Uh, I, I'm going to say 
it's like the 1800s, was it not? Late or early 1900s, maybe? It's pretty close. 1903. Okay, because I was say they had it, I know, in both the World Wars. So, like, I knew yep. it had to be before that. But, mm-hmm. okay, okay. And so, would you know what, would you know what the Zeppelin is? Not the band. <laughs> <laughs> I only know of the band, unfortunately. Okay. Do you know what a blimp is? Like, in the air? Yeah. Okay, yes, I do. I okay. Do. So, a Zeppelin is a lot like a blimp. But a zeppelin is a rigid air structure. So a blimp, a blimp is something that it's essentially a giant balloon in a lot of ways. Mm. Uh, whereas a or a blimp, yeah, a blimp is like a giant balloon. A zeppelin is like a skeleton that has giant bags of hydrogen, very rare cases helium in them. So instead of being just like a blown up balloon, it's like a, a rigid structure that you could walk on. Um, and so I don't know if you've ever seen, like, um, uh, Battlefield 1. I know you're not a gamer, but there's Zeppelins in that game. Or okay. the, uh, you know, the it's the Hindenburg disaster. You've oh. seen those photos? Yeah. Right? That was okay. a Zeppelin uh, yeah. that, that burnt to the ground, and that was, like, the end of the Zeppelin era. But kind of before airplanes were cool and usable in a lot of ways... <laughs> Zeppelins were considered the height of air power in warfare and in travel, like the, the, mm. the ocean liners of the sky, essentially. And so what I want to talk about today is Zeppelins in World War I, because that was the first time that they kind of came into their true being. And then what grew out of that, which was like the theories around bombers, between World War One and World War Two, and I think that there'll be a lot of interesting comparisons between that that period and like the Cold War and how we looked at nuclear weapons. But so I guess first I'll I'll start talking, and you can interrupt me any point with questions. Uh, okay. So uh, Zeppelins, Germany in World War One, so the German Empire, uh, they were the main users of Zeppelins in World War One, and essentially there was this thought uh, um, that Zeppelins would end the war super fast. Uh, they thought that there was this, this guy named, um, he was a general whose last name was Zeppelin, who mm. essentially invented the, the, the concept and the Zeppelins. And he essentially thought that in, within like a couple weeks, the Zeppelins would bomb the British cities and burn the British cities and bring Britain to its knees without ever needing to really fight them. Um, and so they Germany invested large amounts of money into these gigantic, like, airships. They were, you know, 300 feet long, uh, 100 feet tall, and they would carry maybe... And that would just be the part that was filled with hydrogen. They were all filled mm-hmm. with hydrogen. They would fly up in the air... And they'd fly from Germany to Britain and drop bombs. And it was the first instance, first true instance of aerial bombing in the history of the world, where someone would drop, you know, explosives on another city from the air. And it just like freaked the hell out of the British. Like the fact that someone would be able to drop bombs. Like right now we think it's like, oh, that's such a easy thing. But uh, back then, like if you drop bombs on the other person's city, it was like a signal that like you were 
lost because typically, like, if you got if your city got bombed, that meant that they were like three miles away shooting from cannons, mm-hmm. and so it was like this giant paradigm shift of like what was considered possible in warfare. And so, I guess, do you have like you grew up in the modern era, right? Yes. You grew up whether you're completely aware of it or not, thinking about the fact that at any point, like Russia could could nuke the shit out of the United States and America would nuke the shit out of them. And so do you have any thoughts about you growing up in that era versus people who grew up in an era where it was like literally impossible to bomb and like how that might affect you at this, like right now? Like, hmm. do you have any thoughts? I have, on that? I have two thoughts. One thought is... It's interesting how, we, while that's true, I think we are at a point, a lull of, like, that's just not as much of an eminent threat. Like, I, it's like one of those things where it's like, it's so possible, but like, that is not something I actively, and hopefully none of us actively uh-huh. think about, because we are, just how, how just the state of the world has been for us in the United States recently. But I do remember hearing stories of, I can't remember, it must have been my, it had to have been my grandparents telling me about how they used to have, like, bomb alarms and bomb like te- like drills in school where they'd hear an alarm and it'd be like all right that's the bomb alarm and they would all practice going under the desk because there's a potential bombing from a country because they're in the middle of a war like mm-hmm. insane but like now if i can't even fathom like while it's possible that's not something i even think about but i didn't even think about the fact that yeah like just i can't even imagine the very first like oh yes like we held them off. Like there's no troops around. Woohoo! And you look up in the sky, and there's this mm-hmm. huge ass blimp, <laughs> just <laughs> dropping bomb. Like it's just that's I, yeah. I can't even imagine like something that we take for granted as like yeah. I mean like now they're even you know like we see planes with drones and or like drone looking planes where like there's no pilots in them and that's just like how we do a lot of our airstrikes now. You know, it's so, like that's mm-hmm. like that's insane to even think about. Whereas like just a hundred years ago, I mean air quotes but like we talked about in the last history episode like there's you know so much history right just 100 years ago it wasn't even fathomable to do that and now you know it's something that we're like we're manning planes without people in them and those are just like dropping insane weapons so uh, yeah i I, those are my i guess like immediate thoughts but i'd be curious how like what when you say bomb theory i guess walk me through like the transition from zeppelin to mm-hmm. actual plane to bombing plane. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So of course, yeah, I don't know how familiar you are with like world war two, but you know, we had the, like the B 24, like the super fortress bombers that we had during, uh, during the world wars that essentially like we went and we just leveled cities like during world war two, the United States essentially destroyed the entirety of urban Japan with bombers Mm. with thousands and thousands and thousands of bombers. And so that's kind of like when people think of bombers in practice, that was like the, the height of aerial bombing, just bombing everything to shit. Uh, And so, but before world war two, no one really knew what bombers were because in world war one, bombers were pretty jank. Uh, because airplanes were pretty jank. And so Zeppelins mm-hmm. did a lot of bombing, but they were also bomber aircraft. But during the interwar period, so from 1918 through 1939, there was a lot of advancement in aircraft. And there was these theories that developed as to what would happen 
if another war broke out. Because, of course, World War I was terrible and lived in everyone's minds. And so the prevailing thought was like, similar to what I said earlier, um, where Zeppelin, the, the German general, thought that Zeppelins would end the war immediately. The, a lot of the military thinkers in the interwar period thought bombers would end the war immediately. Uh, there was this common phrase, I forgot the man who popularized it, but essentially said bomb, the bombers will always get through. Essentially that you cannot stop the bombers. And so this idea was everyone needs to have as many bombers as possible and the goal is to go and annihilate all of the other per- people's cities before they can annihilate your cities. So in a lot of ways, it, it sounds a lot like mutually assured destruction when we talk about the Cold War and nuclear weapons, where it's like you just have to destroy everything. Mm-hmm. And there was this huge fear that when, when the next war broke out, bombers would just come, bomb cities to hell, drop a bunch of poisonous gas, and just destroy the populations. And, like, the armies wouldn't even fight. And the, as the reason that happened is because there's so much effort put into these bombers and developing these very advanced bombers, and there was less effort put into the defense systems at the start. And so it was like this phrase, oh, the bombers will always get through, we'll always destroy the bombers, or we'll always, we'll never be able to stop the bombers. Um, and so it gave way to this, two things, is one, this, this huge fear of, um, you know, once the war breaks out, everything's going to get destroyed, but also this false sense of security amongst the European powers that the fact that we have bombers means that no one will fight us hmm. because you know, we'll be able to destroy them. We'll be able to stop the war if anything happens. And so I think that that's a really interesting parallel, this idea that, you know, we have a similar thought now, and I don't know how familiar you are with, like, Cold War doctrine, this idea of mutually assured destruction, which is, you know, Russia or China is not going to start a major war with the United States or use nuclear weapons because we'll nuke them. Mm -hmm. Like, but... And that's one of the one of the things is or one of the ideas is you can't stop the nukes. This is a very prevailing thought, um, and that but that was a very similar thought uh, during the interwar bomber theory was just that you can't stop them. But then once the war broke out, they found out that you can kind of stop them. Uh, fighter fighter airplanes, which are typically used to just stop the fight bombers, stop the bombers had advanced to a point where they could stop them. Radar was developed to help see the bombers come early. And Britain, for example, was able to defeat the German Air Force that was mainly consisted of bombers and whatnot when they were trying to destroy Britain's will to continue the war. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of the, 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 the overview of, and some of my thoughts in comparison to the Cold War, but of like what the interwar bomber theories developed. And part of that was from the, what the Zeppelins did in World War One, but it's kind of its own idea of like this idea that this one thing will change warfare forever and in the end it really didn't and so i don't know if you have any thoughts on that particular uh or anything i just rambled on about but yeah i think i think that that entire concept not to stray too far away from history here but the the entire concept of like oh this thing this is this is earth shattering. This is going to change the world. This is whatever. And then it happens and then 
it's like, oh, well, we need to have new technology to combat that. Or, oh, we're going to build on top of that technology. Or it kind of reminds me like there's like this in psychology, like the hedonic treadmill, if you ever heard of that. It's like this like idea <laughs> of just like we're always chasing the carrot, right? Like we basically have like this like stable set of happiness in our lives and like things happen. We get a new car and like our happiness spikes and then like it ultimately goes back down and you know, we're never ultimately happy. It's the same thing, right? Like everyone's saying, Oh, the world's going to just change with blockchain or it's, Oh, the world's going to change with, you know, the smartphones. I mean, granted it, it did, it literally did, mm-hmm. but like there's always something else. So it's interesting that that concept of this is going to change, but the concept of, well, don't push us because like we're set, like we're, we're totally good to go. Like I can't imagine like, I don't know, like Apple, like withholding like the iPhone or something just to say like, Oh, you just, you wait, like you, yeah. like it would like, you, you can't even imagine like what would happen if we release this technology onto the world. <laughs> like that's essentially like what this was. It was just like, Oh, we have this stuff. Like you don't, you don't want us to use it, but actually it's just like upon deployment, it's like, well, you know, like you said, we develop radars, we develop these other things. So it's like, mm-hmm. It's interesting because then when you tie that mindset back to now, what what was the phrase you said? Mutually something. Mutually assured destruction. So same thing, right? It's like, you know, 80 years ago, that's what Germany was saying. Oh, we have these bombers. Like, you you kill us, we're going to just, like, annihilate you. It's kind of the same thing now. It's like, well, granted, like, technology is more advanced now than it once was. But it's just like, it makes you curious. Do you think that that will actually hold off a stalemate for the end of time? Or do you think <laughs> at one point... One of these, you know, countries is going to be like, you know what? I, I think our technology is more superior. Let's, uh, let's, let's do something, you know? So it's like, do you think that stalemate's going to go on forever? Like, do you think that that theory like is going to hold out for our lifetime or for, you know, lifetimes past us? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, that's difficult to answer. Um, because right now, like, again, I want to kind of roll back to our previous history episode where we talk about the scale of time. You know, mutually assured destruction has kept peace in the world. Okay, I, I guess I don't want to say peace. It's kept peace among the greatest powers in the world for the past, I don't know, 75 years, maybe. Mm-hmm. And that's such a short span of time. And so we're, we're basing all of these assumptions on 75 years in the span of, you know, modern history even is 300, 400 years old. So it's tough. Um but I think that mutually assured destruction, that concept that's, that kept the, really in a lot of ways, the United States and Russia at bay between each other, um, is starting to fall apart. Because in a similar way that um, at the beginning of the interwar period, after World War I, bombers always could get through. But then by the end, at the start of World War II, technology for defenses had advanced to the point where that's not exactly the case. I think we're seeing a similar thing um, with nuclear weapons today. Uh, if you look at, and, you know, rocket technology in general, I think that something is, if you get the chance that if you haven't seen, um, right now there's a lot of conflict going on in Israel and Palestine. Uh, and it's in the news right now. It's, it's actually a huge geopolitical problem. That would be interesting to unpack in itself. But Israel has this rocket defense system called the Iron Dome. And essentially what it is is, all around Israel, there are all of these rockets, interceptor rockets, that whenever someone launches something at Israel, Israel will launch a rocket up that intercepts that rocket and blows it up in the sky. Mm. And it's like this, it's actually a huge point of contention of whether this is like, should be allowed in warfare to have these Iron Dome systems. And of course, like 
the United States and Russia and China all have similar technologies, um, but Israel has deployed it probably to the to what we have seen happen, at least probably to the greatest extent. And so it has kind of makes it really difficult for someone to launch like a traditional ICBM or nuclear missile at, at Israel because it's relatively likely they'll just be able to shoot it out of the sky. And so that's one of the uh, things that I think is changing. Technology has reached a point where not only can we launch nuclear missiles, but we also can likely destroy them. And maybe we can't destroy all of them, but it's probably will be difficult for Russia or China or even the United States to launch, really destroy a whole country. Um, because, you know, we have, I don't know, you people hear these figures. I mean, there's enough nukes in the world to destroy every major city like 10 times over, some crazy figure. But a lot of those nukes are in formats that are never going to hit their target. Like mm. if in, in 2021, a nuke being dropped from a traditional bomber plane, like a B-52 or even like the B-2. Uh, uh, so like that's never going to probably actually hit its target. It's too easy to shoot down a bomber these days. They're just not fast enough. And traditional, even traditional uh, missiles uh, likely can be shot down. And so I think that this concept of mutual assured destruction is slowly breaking down. It still exists, but I don't think it's going to hold forever because technology advances on both sides. Hmm. That's interesting. And it also made me think about when you were kind of describing that, that like so many things, and obviously this is the purpose, but it's interesting to think about that like your comment of, Oh well, the, the you know China, Russia, and the United States. We also we also have just like incredible like counter strike systems. Well, it's like, I mean, I know that that the purpose is to operate in silence, but like it always makes you wonder. You know, it's like, I mean, I, I hope right. Like, I, it, there's obviously not proof, and maybe there is proof, and I'm just like negligent of it. And if there is proof, that's probably not great for us because then <laughs> you know Russia and all them know. So it's like, it's fascinating to think about because it's also like we're at this point mutually. What's the phrase? <laughs> <laughs> Mutually assured destruction. Assured destruction. I should write that down. Mutually assured <laughs> destruction. It's also at the point where it's just like, again, it kind of like the comment I made. It's like we're, we're at a point where it's just like assumptions. It's like, oh, well, like we are getting to the point where like maybe that does break down because we have all these just defense systems and surely like there's no way like, I don't know. Like, like do you do you like genuinely believe that or are you just like by theory like and you know, like citing like investments and citing like the development of technology. We just assume that there are like these like just extremely mature, robust systems in place, like around the U S to like protect us on that. Or like, is that just like a, like, I don't know. Is that like an assumption or is that like rooted in like, I don't know. Definitely an assumption. I mean, uh, I remember when I was, I went to a seminar, um, kind of like an ethics seminar at Notre Dame, uh, before I went to college and, uh, Former, I guess maybe he's still a general, General Mattis. He used to be in charge of the strategic, mm. like the nuclear command. He came and spoke to us. And I remember I asked him a question. And I was like, the wow. question was essentially like, you know, like, what technology does the, the, the U.S. military have in comparison to like the private sector? Um, and essentially his answer was like, you just, some, you just don't know. Like, there are some things that are, like, very advanced that, like, you 
that are much, much, much more advanced than what the private sector has. Of course, in specific areas, like they don't have a more advanced iPhone or, you know, more advanced, you know, maybe GPS technology. But like there are certain things in the realm of like identifying people of, of targeting that the U.S. military has in development that are from his words. And of course, he didn't give a completely straight answer. Far, <laughs> yeah, far more advanced than what we have, that what we see. And so, of course, I have, when I say there's these robust systems, the only one I kind of know of is the Iron Dome that's being built in Israel. It's the only one that's really been shown to work. And you really should, like, any restaurant, I'd encourage you to look up some of the videos of Palestinian rockets being fired into Israel and the Iron Dome just kind of shooting them all down. It's like, it's very cool. And uh, it's just it's just an interesting application of technology. Um, but I think that it, it's... It's definitely not true that we could stop every nuke. Like, I don't think there's this robust... There's not, like, an Iron Dome in the United States because part of the Iron, United States' um, defense plan is the fact that we're so distributed, so big, it's, it will be hard to, to nuke it all. And so I don't think we have quite that level. Um, but I think that it's getting closer and closer, which is making mutually assured destruction less and less of this, this gold pin to hold back warfare. Um, but I also... I think an interesting concept... That's, that's good to think about is this mutually assured destruction idea comes from the thought that nuclear weapons will end it all. Nuclear weapons are the most dangerous thing ever. Um, and so nuclear weapons have only ever been used in warfare twice, right? They were used two times at the end of World War II um, in, in Japan. And so an interesting topic or con- you know, thing to think about is in terms of like bombs, Luke, what do you think was the most like dis- most deadly and destructive bombing like raid during World War II? Like, do you think it was the nuclear, when we dropped the nu- nuclear bombs, do you think it was some other, you know, bombing raid? Just, just, a, just a question to someone who might not be as familiar with World War II. I, I feel like I recall after Pearl Harbor, the U.S. just going ape on Japan, like very like soon after. And so an educated, an educated assumption might be like soon at like the first major strike there after Pearl Harbor, maybe. <laughs> so not the first strike. So the first strike after Pearl Harbor, this is unrelated to what I said, but it's just interesting. Uh, so a commander called Doolittle, mm. uh, after Pearl Harbor, the United States wasn't really in a position to hit Japan. Like we actually were in, a, we were the underdogs at that point. Mm. Uh, in militarily speaking, we must still had a much larger economy. But so this uh, commander Doolittle organized what's called the Doolittle Raid, which was where they took bombers and they put them on air, aircraft carriers, which they weren't supposed to really do. They flew the, or they sailed close enough to Japan where they could launch the bombers, fly over Japan, drop some bombs, and then end up landing the planes in China because they couldn't go back. And so this was called the Doolittle Raid, and it did little. Uh, but it was like this huge morale thing. Um, but once we got to 1944 and 1945, near the end of the war, America had captured enough islands to launch significant raids on Japan and started firebombing Japan, like, just firebombing them to hell, essentially. Mm. Uh, in, in one night in Tokyo, uh, it's estimated that up to 100,000 Japanese died 
in one night in a firebombing that destroyed essentially the entire city. Wow. And for context, the nuclear bombs killed, you know, maybe up to 100,000 or so uh, together and including long-term effects. And this was, you know, 100,000 might have died in one night. It destroyed the entire city. And almost every city in Japan was destroyed by firebombing using napalm and not by nuclear weapons or conventional bombs. Nagasaki and Hiroshima, which were the two cities that were nuked, were actually intentionally spared from being bombed uh, in many ways as a test for the nuclear bombs. Wow. And so, you know, we like to think about these nuclear weapons as the end-all, be-all, the most deadly form of warfare, but the two times they've been used, and granted they have been, they were small nuclear, very small nuclear weapons in back the originals, they weren't the most deadly thing. And so this assumption that the nuclear weapons are the most powerful thing that will stop us from going to war is kind of like, well, non-nuclear weapons can do just as much damage. And so mm-hmm. do you feel like, like as you know, I feel like you're less hist- historically inclined, perhaps, but <laughs> perhaps do you feel like nuclear weapons are stop people from going to war? Like, what are your thoughts on that? That's kind of like why I asked that question earlier of like, you know, we're at this point where like, there's all these assumptions that, well, if, if you, if you start, well, then you're screwed type mentality. I mean, you have to assume that if that was our technology 80 years ago, then you would think that the technology would be 10 X deadlier, 10 X more advanced, 10 X, whatever. So I don't know. I, that's why I'm just, it, it's, it is, it's like a fascinating like topic behind like this, like mutually, like let's not start this thing. Cause like we'll end it. But then also like back to what you said too, you mentioned a comment when you're telling that story about going on an aircraft up to wherever. And you said, which they weren't supposed to, what do you mean by that? Could you remind me again of you? You were talking about like Doolittle's raid, yeah. and like they like went. They were going to do a bunch of, like mini uh, bombings, so they took an air aircraft carrier and they went somewhere. And then you said like, oh, they went somewhere on an aircraft which they weren't supposed to do. I guess I was, they weren't supposed to. Uh, I meant that. So they put the aircraft carrier on, or they put the bombers. They modified the bombers to be put on an aircraft carrier and like launched off an aircraft carrier mm-hmm. because typically a bomber you need to have a really long runway to get it in the air. And so bombers aren't meant, are usually, at least then, were not meant to be put on aircraft carriers because they could never land back on them. And so they really, they intentionally were like, okay, we're not supposed to put the bombers on the aircraft carriers, but we're going to do this just so that we can essentially, you know, slap Japan in the face by dropping a few bombs on them that won't do anything just so the American people know we're trying. And so I, I, I guess I'm probably misspoke in that, but it's like just that, They've. It's kind of like this idea of when you're really down and out, you do stupid things just to do mm-hmm. them that aren't really worth it, and that was kind of that. It's just an interesting story because his name was Doolittle and his raid did nothing. Yes. So. <laughs> well, that's interesting because because when you said that, it just it kind of tipped me off to another thing we talked about earlier about you were talking about the Iron Dome and it said it was very contentious as if that was something they should or shouldn't do, mm. um, and it, and it just it started making me think about just like the quote unquote like rules. I guess of warfare because it's interesting because it's like, oh, like there's like an unspoken, unwritten like 
fake handshake agreement that we won't start a war because if we start it, we'll you'll end it type thing. And it's just like uh-huh. there's always like fake like up in the air like fictitious like rules and like huh. I won't do this if you don't do that type thing. But like, there's no official treaty. There's no official con. You know, so uh-huh. it's just it's interesting because. I feel like historically, <laughs> it's a little bit I know about history. Historically, those types of things never work out. Like they, yeah. like, they like just like you know shake hands, but like you're just kind of like crossing your fingers and toes type thing. Like I don't know. Like uh-huh. it's worked thus far. I'm curious how long it works. And so I, I guess I'm just fascinated that like yeah. I mean, really, the thing holding us back right now. I mean, granted, there's no extreme level of conflict at the major powers, like you said. I mean, there's obviously grievances uh-huh. and gripes here and there, and. But, like, nothing, I feel like, at a point where, like, it's going to draw war. But inevitably, there is going to be something that is going to, you know, get to a point where, like, we are thinking about war. And I don't think either of the countries is going to be like, well, like, I don't know. Like, we promised we would. You know, like, that's not. It's just going to be like, if we think we're going to do it, we're going to do it. And so, it's like, it's yeah. interesting to think about from the, like, I'm just fascinated by the unwritten and unspoken rules of war. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And so I'd like to circle back to the Iron Dome. Because... You know, when you think about that Iron Dome, how I described it, would you say that's an offensive or a defensive weapon? I would say defensive, and maybe that's novice, but I would say defensive. So that's what, you know, that's what Israel says, oh, this is defensive. But a lot of critics of of systems like that, and in the 1980s, uh, Ronald Reagan proposed building the Star Wars system, Mm -hmm. which was essentially a, a bunch of satellites in space that would shoot any Russian rocket that came. And the Russians and a lot of critics of the Iron Dome say, that's not defensive, that's offensive. Because, and the the criticism goes, if you can stop any attack coming to you, now you're able to start an attack with no consequences. Mm. Because if, let's say, Israel has this capability, Palestine doesn't, um, maybe Iran or Iraq doesn't. So let's say that Israel wants to (laughs) let's say Israel wants to launch a nuke at Iran, one of the nukes that they certainly do not have Mm. that they claim, but they Mm. definitely do. They could do it and be confident that they could shoot down the the repercussions. And so in some ways, these defensive systems allow um, countries to be offensive. And that's one of the big criticisms of developing this technology is if America can nuke China without China having a chance to nuke America, it makes it so much easier for America to nuke China because there's not this mutually assured destruction, this concept of what was holding back war for a long, or what supposedly was holding back war for a long time, you know. And so do you have any further thoughts after hearing that? Do you still think it's defensive or do you think that's just uh, the, the, that criticism's just kind of contrived yeah no that that's fair but i guess it's, it's interesting especially the cause I, I guess i kind of remember reading about that like in a history book or something about ronald reagan's proposal and like at a very like novice view i guess before going into this conversation my, my answer to that probably would have been well like i mean who like it's it's us if we want to do it do it like it's just like it's defense but I guess it's interesting because it's like, yeah, well, if we do it, then everyone else will do it. And then they'll outbuild the technologies. And all of a sudden, like what was once defensive and like first mover doesn't really matter anymore because it's just, you know, so it's, it's fascinating how that like does devil out because yeah, if, 
Israel has like a proven thing like this, an Iron Dome. Well, then it's just like, well, shit, we need something like that. And all of a sudden, every major power in the world's building something like that. And then we build technology on top of that structure. And then like, that's when it starts to deviate and start to really trickle down to the scary effects of, you know, what the technologies we have. And so, yeah, I, I, that's, that's an interesting way to look at it. And it just makes me wonder, I, I don't know, has like the seal been broken now that it's built now that it's proven, is it showed every big power that, all right, we really need something like that. Or is it just like, every major power is going to condemn that and just, you know, be very noble and not build that. I find that hard to believe, but do you think that that's something that's plausible? I mean, I think that every, I would be confident saying that every major power is building something like it or in the process, you know, I'm sure in a lot of ways they do have systems that are similar. You know, there have been for a long time, like surface to air missiles that will shoot down planes. They're just not fast enough for, for rockets. And mm-hmm. I know America is publicly working on similar things, uh, like defensive capabilities, and so is China, so is Russia. Um, it's just that the entire system isn't quite in place to the level that the Iron Dome is. The Iron Dome is finished by any means, but I think that everyone is working on it. And I think that the, the, the scarier thing is, you know, all these great powers probably have the capabilities to build it now. But the smaller countries don't. And so that's the concern is that, you know, in some ways the concern isn't that America and China will have these systems that can stop their nuclear attacks or any of their, you know, attacks. The concern is that in, in Israel right now, Israel has a system like this and Palestine doesn't. And Israel is exerting its influence in many ways, colonizing, um, Mm -hmm. taking over parts of Palestine and Palestine has very little they can do to fight back. Um, they do launch rockets into Israel <laughs> and Israel shoots them down and then airstrikes Palestine and Palestine can't really defend themselves. Mm-hmm. And so it be, it's puts this great imbalance of power between the great powers and the rest of the world that, you know, in many ways has, has existed, but could lead to another point where in a similar way that during the cold war, all of these other countries need to kind of say, oh, we need to join sides with one of these great powers because if someone were to attack us with these this new rocket technology, not necessarily nukes, we need to have someone that's able to shoot it down for us and defend us because we really can't defend ourselves. And so it brings up this interesting idea of what do alliances look like in 20 years and 15 years and what's the system of power in the world um, as opposed to what it's looked like for the last 20 years. I think the concept of alliance is something that's very fascinating as well, because like we've been talking about this mutually assured destruction, I remembered the phrase this time. (laughs) It's obviously there's no alliances between us, China and Russia, right? Mm -hmm. But because uh, our three countries are not making these major moves, nothing's really happening on a world stage. Mm -hmm. So it's like, no, there's no alliances, but it's like, it's interesting how because the top powers aren't making aren't doing i don't know like aren't exerting their power on any other countries like yeah i mean the israel that that's obviously sad but like it'd be a totally different conversation if china was doing this to a big you know right and so it's like or if russia was doing this to another country as publicly as is happening right now because then that would that would 
trip the trigger for a lot of these major powers. And that's when those alliances would, that, that would maybe be a little bit more scary, but it's interesting how sure, like these major countries were not alliances, but it's like, it's up to us to quote, keep, keep the peace. I guess by, by like kind of inaction, nothing mm-hmm. like action elsewhere. I mean, is obviously sad and devastating and maybe like, you know, would draw the attention of these major countries. But if it were a major country, you know, encroaching on these smaller countries, then that's when it would be like, all right, like that's these bigger powers made a move. It's time to actually think about what's next. Well, I think that's somewhat interesting. And, you know, I do agree that no country is exerting its, no major country is exerting its power over smaller countries quite in the way that Israel is. Um, But you do have like Russia is currently doing a lot of shit in uh, Ukraine. Mm. And China is really toying with Taiwan. And so both those countries are, in a lesser lesser extent, of course, um, kind of trying to take over these other countries. Um, And they're kind of tiptoeing. And this is interesting. They're kind of tiptoeing closer and closer to, like, taking things over and just seeing how America reacts or Mm. seeing how Europe reacts. Um, And so, I mean, like, Russia... In, 19, in 1914, in 2014, annexed Crimea. They literally took a part of Ukraine. They just kind of waltzed in, sent their military, took it over. And then they then they held an election where everyone in Crimea said they wanted to join Russia, of course. <laughs> and so, and America imposed sanctions and we said that's bad and then nothing kind of happened. And so it's this interesting concept of even in some ways when the greater powers do things like this, you're less likely to do anything. Mm. Because America's like, oh, are we really going to risk like world destruction over Ukraine? Because like for you, like as an American, as just an American mm. citizen, would you want America to go to war with Russia or China over Ukraine or Taiwan? Mm-hmm. Like what? What do you think about that? <laughs> Fair point. Like, hopefully, we maybe maybe your answer will lead you to hope that there's no Ukrainians or Taiwanese people. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that that's a fair point because it's just like at what point? Yeah, I mean, like we we wag our finger, but yeah, that's that's fascinating. So it it makes you wonder what what is going to if ever get to a point. To where? Because, yeah, I mean, like, I feel like there's never going to, quote, be something big enough to cause this huge war unless there's, you know, I I don't want to manifest it, but it's like, you know, unless <laughs> something just like major happens in the homeland, like that might be you no know, cause of something. But it's just like, yeah, I mean, there's like, there's probably few things that would actually result in World War Three or, you know, yeah. like, yes, there's a lot of things that would we would denounce and there's a lot of things we would impose sanction on and maybe those effects would then lead to something bigger but yeah it's it's interesting it's just like how how close especially since this doesn't happen here it's not happening in like there's no lives lost here so it's like we we care and like we say we care and like we denounce and impose sanctions but it's like would there ever would there ever be anything that happens in like foreign country that invokes us so much that we feel the need to yeah put like the world at risk and yeah. n- unfortunately, a few countries and territories, I don't think is is going to do that. So that, that that's a good point. I never really thought of it that way. Yeah, I think it's yeah. It kind of harkens back to like you know in, in a quick way like World War Two, where you know 
Germany took over Czechoslovakia. They took over, or they took over Austria. They took over parts of Czechoslovakia. And every time, you know, France and Britain were like, you know what, you can't do that. You can't do that. And then they were like, well, you did it. <laughs> Don't do it next time. And Hitler was like, I promise. And then they invaded Poland, and um, France and Britain declared war and didn't fight them until Germany attacked them. Um, there was really no like major fighting until Germany actually attacked Britain and France. Mm. And so it's a similar way in the United States where it's kind of like, yeah, I mean, you can, in in a lot of ways, we almost like invite, like, oh, you can attack them and we might think about doing something. But I think that our resolve is getting less and less ever since the Cold War kind of ended where we're just like, it's not worth it for us. Like, uh, and so I I, I agree. I think it's going to be an interesting kind of next 20, 30 years um, geopolitics has shifted so much, and mm-hmm. I think it's going to be a, it's going to continue to continue to go down that route. But probably should be uh, wrapping up here soon. Yeah, um, I was actually just going to mention that it there was a small part of our conversation that, depending on how the episode went, I was going to ask. But I'm going to save the question and perhaps give you uh, an interesting episode topic in the future that is mildly history related, and I might throw you for a loop. But well, and uh, I'm yeah, excited no, to hear it. Yeah, it, we'll see if it's the next episode, but I'm going to put it in my pocket because I think that would be okay. a fun uh, fun episode to talk about. Well, I know we already did a lot of history, a little bit. Actually, we only did a little bit of history, mostly theory, which is good. This is good. <laughs> but I guess we should probably re- revolve around to our infrequently occurring regular <laughs> segment, uh, which I think we just switched last episode to, Luke, give me a time period, a, a, a century, a, an empire, or something from history that you are vaguely aware of and I'll try to give you a fact and if I can't we'll cut it out in post <laughs> well since we were talking about World War uh, World War II what what's like maybe it's a little different than the actual giving you a time or whatever what's like a very unknown World War II fact like what's something that's just like so like just an extremely fascinating fact about World War II that like not many people know about we don't learn about in class Hmm. That is interesting. I need to think. I'll probably think out loud a little bit. Um, so I think that many people learn World War II from a European perspective, right? It's all about it's all about Germany, and uh, you know Germany, the Nazis, the Italians, and then it's about Japan at the end when America fights Japan. Mm. Uh, I think something that's interesting to just know about, and this isn't so much of just a basic fact, but like the Pacific theater in Japan in general was like a really big deal. The British were fighting Japan. The French were fighting Japan. The Dutch were fighting Japan. Like all of these European countries were fighting the Japanese and just got, got their ass kicked by them, essentially. Mm-hmm. And the Japanese war, or the Pacific War, started in 1937 and earlier. So, like, World War II, most people think, oh, it started in 1939 when Hitler invaded Poland. But in reality, in Asia, the war had been going on. In China, in parts, other parts of, uh, of Asia, with Japan, two years before that. And everyone just kind of ignored it. And then the Japanese surprise attacked everyone, um, finally... Uh, kind of in 1941 was when they did their big attack 
and took over almost all the colonial possessions of Britain, France, the Dutch, um, in like the matter of a month or so. Mm. And so I think that it's just interesting that people people don't realize just how big the West or the Pacific Theater was in World War II. I think there's a lot of focus on on Europe, and so it's like to say that it was like two years earlier, and it was a big deal. So, wow, yeah, good fact. Didn't know that. Yeah, because I'm always I've always learned of it as just like Japan, these little dudes that just like were like you know poking our buttons, bombing yep. Pearl Harbor, and then we just destroyed them, which is not necessarily <laughs> the narrative. That's true. So no, I mean we we. There was little, very, really, very, ever, there was a, only a small chance we really ever could have lost to Japan because we were so mm. much bigger. But they did nearly destroy our, our like, navy in the Pacific multiple times. Like, they were much more powerful than us in the Pacific at the start of the war. And it wasn't until we kind of got that good old American manufacturing and we're churning <laughs> out, like, like, 10 ships a day that we were able to kind of overcome that and then then it was kind of a downhill battle for them. But yeah, it's a, it was a pretty scary time for the United States at the very start because we weren't prepared. So Interesting. And look at us now. Look at us now. Now we are prepared for everything that might never come. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jared, this is a very successful first remote podcast. Here's to many more and hopefully trinkles of uh, in-person podcasts every once in a while. But yeah. very smooth. I'm excited to keep this going. Well, that sounds good. I guess uh, we will... Hopefully do another one soon. And I guess thank you everyone for listening. Uh, Hopefully the audio sounds good. Let us know if you have any suggestions Um, for all billion listeners. um, One B, baby. We try to read all of your feedback. uh, There's just so much to get through. It's It's, it's been tough kind of responding to the zeros of feedback we've been receiving. (laughs) Many zeros. (laughs) (laughs) But... Yeah, thanks everyone for listening. Um, and Luke will have the topic next time. So, can't wait. Thanks, Jared. Thanks. See ya.